Well, if you can open your Bibles to Mark 6, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word today. Mark 6, starting in verse 45. Mark writes, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, and he dismissed, while well, he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The sentence of reading of God's word, you may be seated. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, last, last week, if you were here, we looked at the, the previous miracle in verses 30 to 44, the feeding of the 5,000. That's uh, easily one of the most well-known miracles of, of uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we saw last week, it's one of the only ones that are recorded in all four Gospels. If you read all four of the Gospels, you'll notice they aren't cookie-cutter. They don't all cover the exact same things. The, the, the Apostle John what does he write towards the end of the Gospel of John? That if, you know, Jesus did so many miracles in his earthly ministry that if, if you were to try to put them all in a book, you wouldn't have enough paper, basically. There wouldn't be enough books uh, able to contain all the things that Jesus did. He was very busy, healed many, many people, even as we see in our text here, more than we could possibly count. Well, today we're going to look at another very well-known miracle of, of our Lord and in some ways, you could say this miracle, in some ways, is more widely known than even the feeding of the 5,000, and that is Jesus walking on the, the water. Now, even people who have never opened the Bible, or almost never opened the Bible, or read the Gospels at all, somehow are familiar with the, this miracle. Walking on water, you probably know, has become something of a metaphor or a figure of speech for holiness, People often describe somebody whom they greatly admire for their character, godly character, as somebody who, quote, you know, so-and-so walks on water, or they practically walk on water. What are they saying? They're saying they're, they're, they're this close to Jesus. They're, they're, they're almost like Jesus in how good of a person he or she uh, is. It's kind of a figure of speech for perfection. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker. I'm not always a fan of bumper stickers, but there's one that says something like, next time you think you're perfect, try to do what? Try walking on water. We'll see how perfect you are, right? That's a pretty good bumper sticker. Humbling, necessarily humbling message of that one. Well, in Jesus' case, it's not a metaphor. In his case, really only, it's not a metaphor. He not only commands the wind and the sea, which you saw back in Mark chapter 4, verse 41. Remember, 
there's a storm. He's sleeping in the back of the boat. The disciples wake him up. It's the fact that he's sleeping in the back of the boat. They wake him up, and he, he tells the storm to knock it off. And they wanted to jump out of the boat. They said, what manner of man is this that the wind and the sea do what? Obey him. That's not normal. That doesn't happen. Nobody, nobody does that. Who, who does that? Well, only one person does that. Well, he, he commands the wind and the sea. And Well, here we're going to see he walks on the sea. Walks on the sea as well. You know, that, just like with that previous miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, it wasn't just because people were hungry, although he did feed people. That miracle actually reveals, it's one of the ways Jesus reveals who he is. Well, that same, that same lesson is being taught as we're going to see here. This miracle shows who Jesus really is, that he truly is the Lord our God. He has the power over the laws of nature itself. Well, this morning uh, our outline is going to be a, a fairly simple one. Uh, three points as, as usual, but a very simple outline. First, Jesus prays. Secondly, Jesus walks. And thirdly, Jesus saves. So Jesus prays, Jesus walks, and Jesus saves. The first thing we see in our text is Jesus praying. Look at verses 45 to 46. Mark says, immediately, this is after the feeding of the 5,000, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now, when you're looking at this particular passage, it's easy to overlook this part of the text, isn't it? You, you get to that walking on the sea part, and that sort of jumps off the page um, at you. You, know, you. you look at this verse, and it's so in such close proximity to the, the miracle that gets our attention that we can sometimes, this part kind of falls through the cracks. We don't really give it much, give it much attention. But if you stop to think about it, in some ways... It's not miraculous, but in some ways, the most amazing thing, in, in one sense at least, in our passage, isn't that Jesus walked on the sea, it's that he prayed, and that he prayed all night. He spent that much time in prayer. I think, for a lot of us, that sort of shocks us more than the miracle. The miracle, if you believe your Bible, which you should, you're, of course Jesus does miracles, right? That's kind of how we think of it, but this kind of part of the passage, I think, at times makes us kind of draw back and think, wait, why did he have to do that? Why would, of all the people that shouldn't have needed to pray, we think it was Jesus that shouldn't have needed to pray. Why, why did Jesus pray? You ever ask that question? He prays throughout the, the Gospels. It's not like a one-time thing here and you never see it again. He's constantly praying. Some of his prayers are recorded. Some of them are very long. John chapter 17, right, is the... the People say this, the Lord's Prayer that we pray. Well, John 17 is really the Lord's Prayer. It's him praying. Um, why did Jesus pray? If he's God, and he is, he's the Son of God, does he really need to pray? Or was it just for show? Did Jesus pray just to set an example for us? Is he play acting? Isn't that kind of what that would be? If all it is is for an example, not that example is a bad thing. Is Jesus play acting? Just to give us an example, is that what he's doing? No, he's by himself. If he's going to play act, why are they out in the boat? Why are we just reading it and they don't get to, to see it? You know, these, these can be some perplexing questions for you and I to wrestle with at times if we take the time to look at what the Bible says 
and really think about it. We struggle, I think, as Bible-believing Christians at times to understand the implications of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that shouldn't surprise us. It's one of the most uh, perplexing doctrines, but, but core central doctrines in all of, of Scripture is the incarnation. We struggle with how we're supposed to understand, much less articulate, his true deity and his true humanity. That Jesus Christ, in the words of our shorter catechism, question 21, that Jesus is, quote, God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Easy to say that, easy to, to, to repeat it if, if you're memorizing the catechism, but to grasp the implications of what that means is be, can be very difficult. In his book, recent book, Knowing Christ, Mark Jones puts it helpfully this way. He, he writes, Our apparent dilemma disappears when we remember that Jesus was not only divine, but also fully human. Even as the perfect man, he, he no doubt still needed to pray. A robust, reverential, dependent prayer life was suitable and necessary given the various trials and distresses that he faced as the suffering servant. The scriptures certainly give the impression that his prayer life was as in indispensable for him as it is for us. His prayer life described so vividly in the New Testament leaves us in awe. What a thought, the Son of God praying to God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thought if you stop and think about what Jesus is doing when he's, when he's praying. It's a humbling thought when you think about our Lord, the Lord of glory, praying and praying as often and as long as he, as he did. And he still prays even now, doesn't he? The book of Hebrews says he ever lives to intercede for those who come to God through him. Well, I think you and I need to be careful to do justice, not just to the true divinity of Christ, as important as that is that he really is and truly is God Almighty, the Son of God. We also have to do justice to his true humanity, which you know, I think oftentimes we fail to do that. Uh, you know, theological liberals and cults, they most often, I think, fail to do justice to the former. They say that he's not quite God in some sense. They, they reduce his divinity in some way, shape, or form. I think we who are Bible-believing, well-meaning, sincere evangelicals I think at times we fail to do justice to the other thing. We fail to do justice to his true humanity. We have to be careful as Christians to affirm both the true divinity and the true humanity of our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the truth of both of those things, uh, we don't have a true mediator between God and man. For him to be our go-between, for Jesus Christ to be our mediator, our, our, our savior, he has to be both really and truly and fully both, God and man at the same time. Now, as we examine our Lord praying in, in, our, in our text this morning, um, I think it's clear we see it's not some hurried, perfunctory prayer, was it? That's how I pray a lot of times. Maybe that's how you pray too. You're in a hurry, you kind of you know, spew out your list and, and you get on with your work. Um, I'm guilty that maybe you are, but that's not how Jesus prayed, is it? You know, Mark... I think strongly implies that this, this time of prayer, however long it was, lasted quite a while. Verse 47, the very next thing Mark says is that when evening came, it was when evening came that he saw the disciples straining at the oars uh, because of the, the wind and the waves. Jesus was praying, I think it's clear, well into the night. 
Now, it doesn't matter how long. He wasn't there with a stopwatch. I don't think that's the point. We're not supposed to time ourselves. But Jesus was praying well into the evening. And that's a pretty consistent theme in the Gospels. Again, this isn't like a one-time, one-off thing that we see him praying a long time here. And then he, he seems to go up to the mountain to pray quite a bit uh, at times throughout, throughout the Gospels. Our Lord Jesus often took time away from everything else to spend time with his Father in prayer. Is it it any wonder, you know, when when Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, Luke uh, chapter 2, why did he teach it? Well, right before it, what what does it say that the disciples did? They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Well, why did they ask Jesus of all people to teach them how to pray, or, or really to teach them to pray? Well, they've seen his example. They've seen how he prayed. And they knew, just like we know, they don't pray like that. They need help. They need instruction on how how to pray. That was the context of Jesus teaching them the Lord's Prayer. Is Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Now think about this. After a long, tiring day of ministering to the crowds, you'd have to read the previous verses to get a feel for that. Jesus needed rest. So what did, what did he do? You ever have a long day at work? And you come home, what do you want to do? Besides nothing, you know, right? What did Jesus do? He went away by himself to spend time with his father in prayer. I don't know about you, but isn't that, at least oftentimes, the very last thing that, that you and I think to do when we're tired after a long, hard day at work? Myself, you know, if I have a long day at work, my work is more often than not mentally taxing and not physically taxing. Um, the last thing that, that, that comes to my mind is to stop and pray. When I'm tired, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't often say, I'm exhausted, I need to spend some time in prayer to recharge. I think I need to sit down and not think. I need to sit down and not do much of, of anything. Uh, stop and eat? Sure, right? Um, stop and shut off my brain in front of a, of a television? Uh, guilty as charged. Uh, waste time scrolling through my so-called smartphone, looking at social media posts about what people are having for dinner. Uh, guilty as charged again. But what about prayer? I don't, I don't often, that's not the first thing that comes to my mind. My first thing that comes to my mind is you know, throw the keys on the counter and let me sit down and let me have a few minutes to just not think, to not do much of anything. J.C. Ryle writes the following. He says, there are a few things it may be feared in which Christians come so far short of Christ's example as they do in the matter of prayer. Our master's strong crying and tears, his continuing all night in prayer to God, his frequent withdrawal to private places to hold close communion with the Father, are things more talked of and admired than imitated. They're things more talked of and admired than imitated. We live in an age of hurry, bustle, and so-called activity. This is written well over 100 years before our time. So if it was true in his day, it's more true in ours, I think. We live in an age of hurry, bustle, and so-called activity. Men are tempted continually to cut short their private devotions and to bridge their prayers. When this is the case, we need not wonder that the church of Christ does little in proportion to its machinery. The church must learn to copy its head more closely. Its members must be more in their closets. We have little because little is asked. James 4, verse 2. When, what does he say there? We, we talk about it, but we don't imitate it. 
We, and, and if we need not wonder, he says, that the Church of Christ does so little in proportion to its machinery. We've got lots of programs, right? The church always does. Nothing wrong with programs. Uh, but do we pray? And if we're not praying, we shouldn't be shocked that we don't see God doing a whole lot. We don't see, at least we don't see it. Let us look to God for help to pray. We have the intercession of Christ himself. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, as well as the intercession of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.27. We have those things to encourage us in our prayers. We have the Son of God and the Spirit of God interceding for us, and we can look to them both for help in prayers. Let us seek not just to admire, but to imitate Christ's prayer, the prayer of our head, so that as the church we might not do so little in proportion to our machinery, as Ryle says. If we want to see the Lord bless and use us as his church to reach our neighbors with the gospel of Christ, uh, there's one, one thing, maybe one thing only, that's needful. We need to preach the gospel, but we need to pray. If we want to see God do something in this church, we have to become a praying church. That's all there is, that's all there is to it. It's hard. It's hard work. It sounds backwards. Prayer is a lot of not doing much of anything. You're stopping. But we need to pray and ask God's blessing. We, we, he's right. We have not because we ask not. We just assume. Uh, let's learn to pray more and more the way our Savior prayed and prays even now. Well, the second thing we see in our text, and the thing that I think you know, jumps right off the page, obviously, at us, is Jesus walking. And not just Jesus walking, but walking on what? Walking on, on the water. Verses 47 to 48, Mark says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Let's get a kick out of that part of that last part of the verse. He intended to keep going. He was passing right by while they were straining at the oars, and he was going to keep on trucking and go to, the, go to where they were headed and wait for him there. Now, Jesus, uh, you know, we always talk about Jesus walking on water. Well, he did more than that. If you really get down to what the text says, walking on water is one thing. He walked on the sea. And more than that, he walked on a stormy sea. You know, sometimes you picture, I don't know about you, but I, when I hear Jesus walking on water, you know, I picture a lake. Of a calm lake, it, it's like glass, it's so flat, and Jesus just sort of you know, walking on it. It's a stormy sea. The disciples are having trouble getting where they're going. He says it's the fourth watch of the night. People say that's around three in the morning. They've been, who knows what time they started, but it's been a while. And they're rowing, they're probably exhausted, and here comes Jesus just walking as if the storm doesn't even exist. He's walking on top of, of the waves. Jesus defies and supersedes even the laws of nature. He's the God, the ruler of all nature, as the hymn hymn says. The disciples were straining at the oars for hours, and Jesus just walks and walks and walks. And and he's going to pass them. And Mark even says again, he meant to pass by them. You know, what's the disciples' reaction? They're terrified, right? They think they saw, were seeing a ghost. You know, if they weren't so busy being terrified, they might have been kind of flabbergasted. You know, here they are, and there goes Jesus walking right by them. Uh, you know, what's the old saying about slow and steady wins the race? All these grown men rowing on this boat, and Jesus just keeps on walking right, right past them. Well, notice one other thing. Notice the careful watch 
the watchful care of our, of our Savior here. He's not with them this time. Last time he was in the boat and he was sleeping, and they thought he didn't care. This time he's not even in the boat. You can imagine what they might have been thinking. Jesus, oh, where'd he go? He's not even here. We left him behind. Great. Now what are we going to do, right? But he still cares for them. Did he, did he carelessly send them on ahead, knowing that there was going to be a storm? Did Jesus know there was going to be a storm? Certainly he did. Uh, but what does it say? Jesus, verse 48, he saw, quote, saw that they were making headway painfully. Jesus saw it. He was still watching over them. His time in prayer with his father did not mean time when his disciples were somehow not under his watchful care. You know, if you think about it, Mark doesn't tell us for, for many reasons, but for all we know, Jesus might have been interceding for them while he was praying. And then he goes and rescues them. What was the disciples' reaction when they saw Jesus? Was it relief? As, as usual, no. Verses 49 to 50, it says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, uh, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they, saw, they all saw him and were terrified. Grown men crying, and shrieking out when they see him. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Again, they were terrified. Just like last time when he stilled the, the sea, stilled the storm, and their fear went up, not down. Here again, they're, they're terrified. They thought it was a ghost. You know, it's, as, as usually is the case, it's easy for you and me, I think, to be a little too hard on the disciples here, to judge them a little bit too harshly. You know, I think you and I need to, to, to row a mile in their soggy shoes before we take the time to judge them that harshly. You know, think about it. Put, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. What they were seeing wasn't normal. Even for people who were with Jesus for those years of his public ministry, men, men don't walk on water. But this one did. This one does. And so their exhausted minds, you know, think about what they're doing. They're exhausted. They're tired. They're at their wits end. It's three in the morning or something like that. And their tired minds are, are struggling to try to make sense of what they're seeing. And so what do they, what do they think it is? It's, they've never seen a man walk on water. They think it must, be, it must be a ghost. Now think about this. They were probably already scared. And this wasn't, they weren't just rowing in the middle of the night and, and making headway easily. They were tired. They were probably already scared because of another storm. And then Jesus comes walking up to them on the, on the sea. Well, here again we see Jesus revealing who he is, that he's the Son of God. That's, if you want the point of this miracle, that's it. That's the main point of this miracle, that he is the Son of God. In the book of Job, in the ninth chapter of the book of Job, a uh, well, well familiar book to, to most of you probably, we see Job kind of describing God and describing God as great as he is in relation to puny mankind. Job had a, a good grasp of what theologians call the, the creator-creature cre, distinction that there's a God and we're not him, right? This is what Job says in, in Job chapter 9, verses 5 to 12. He describes God this way. God is, quote, He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone 
stretched out the heavens, and here it is, trampled the waves of the sea. God does that. People don't do that. Who made the bear in Orion, the Pleiades in the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? Nobody can stop God's hand. And what does it say? God, one of the things it mentions there in Job 9, God and God alone is the one who tramples or treads the waves of the sea. He is the one who passes by, and we see him not. Just like Jesus was going to pass them by. And they saw him, didn't understand who it was, and they were, they were afraid. Who's the only one who treads upon the waves of the sea? It's God. Who is Jesus? He's God the Son. That's what this miracle tells us. What do we see Jesus doing? Treading your champ. Again, he's not just walking on water. He's treading on the waves of the sea. Straight out of the book of Job, and he would have passed them by. So in, in one sense, they were right to be scared, in a sense, but for the wrong reason. They thought he was a ghost. What they should have been, in one sense, frightened of is, that's God. That's God walking by them on, on the sea, the Son of God. Well, what does Jesus do? What he often does is he calms their fears. He tells them in verse 50 to take, take heart. Now, what, what does he not say? Maybe, you know, if you're like me, sometimes you read a, a text and your mind kind of translates it into meaning something not quite what it's really saying. He's not saying, take heart, it's just me. That's kind of how we read it, I think. And I think when you read it that way, you read it wrongly. He's not saying, hey, you know, don't, don't be worried, don't be afraid, it's just me, settle down. He says, take heart, um, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, in the English, it doesn't jump off the page quite the way it does in the Greek, but the Greek, uh, the, what we see in our translation is, it is I. Literally, it's I am. It's the Greek phrase for I am. That might jump off the page a little bit more to you. It's as a way of identifying himself as God. Not just by the miracle, but by the way he says what he says as well. Remember when God identified himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush? Verses 13 to 14 of Exodus 3, it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Sounds like terrible grammar, doesn't it? But he says, tell them, I am sent me. What does Jesus say? Take heart, I am, don't be afraid. He's telling them and showing them again and again who he is. God is the great I am. He's the self-existent one. Jesus identifies himself the same way as the I am. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll see seven or eight times Jesus calls himself I am something. He, he repeatedly calls himself I am. And at one point, you might know the Pharisees picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was saying. He was, he, was, he was saying, he was claiming to be God. They thought he was blaspheming, but he wasn't because he, is, he was and is the Son of God. Now, if you think about it for a moment, 
Jesus' words here in, in that verse, in verse 50, his words to the disciples, um, they don't seem to go together, or they shouldn't. To tell sinners, it is I, or, or I am, rather. To tell sinners, basically, I'm God, don't be afraid. That should never happen if we're left to ourselves. It seems downright impossible. It seems backwards. Sinners should be very afraid in the presence of a holy God. It would be just common sense. It's not that common in our day, but it would be common sense. Sinners should be very afraid in the presence of a holy God, but not in Christ. In Jesus and in Jesus alone, those two phrases go together in perfect harmony. It's only in Christ that a holy God can tell sinners, I am, don't be afraid. And why is that? The whole reason for Christ's incarnation to begin with, it lies behind all of this. The reason that Jesus can tell sinners in this boat, "Don't, don't be afraid, I am, don't be afraid, is because he came to die on the cross in their place and in our place. That's what the mediator, the, 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 the Messiah, the Christ, came to do. To live the life that we have failed to live, to die the death that we deserve for our sins. And it's because of that that he can say to us as sinners that we are, I am, be not afraid. Now, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? If you are, his constant watchful presence is the one thing that drives away all of your fears. And so I have to ask this morning, I can't assume it, do you know Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ by faith? Do you hear him saying, I am, be not afraid, because you trust in him and his death for your sins in your place? Well, in verses 51 to 52, we see the disciples, um, again, much like us, they still just don't get it, right? We're already through the sixth chapter of Mark, and the disciples are still kind of, scratching their heads. Jesus gets into the boat with them, and for the second time already in Mark's Gospel, what what does Jesus do? He stops a storm. The storm ceases when he got into the boat. And there Mark says, They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were what? Hardened. Here we see Mark telling us that this lesson of, of Jesus walking on the sea is the same lesson they were supposed to learn in the feeding of the 5,000. He mentions the loaves. That's what he's talking about. They didn't understand about the loaves. The loaves should have been red lights flashing in their minds. People don't make a little boy's lunch spread to 10,000 people or whatever, however many people it may have been. Only God can do that. Only God could feed Israel in the wilderness, but only God can feed these people in the wilderness in the Gospel of Mark. The, the lesson here is the same lesson as, as it was then, that they still just didn't get it. Jesus is God. He's Lord. He's the Lord God Almighty, the Son of God. That's the lesson of this, of this miracle that we should get and that they should have gotten as well. And that brings us briefly to our last point, not just that Jesus prays, that Jesus walks on water, but that Jesus saves. Jesus saves. It's because Jesus is Lord, the Son of God incarnate, that as Hebrews tells us, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Again, the same thing as it is I, be not afraid. Sinners drawing near to God is a terrible idea. It's an awful idea if you're in your sins. 
The last thing you ever want to do is try to draw near to a holy God. But what does it say? Through him. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. You cannot draw near to God on your own. That would be just to draw yourself near to judgment. But if you're going to God through Christ, through faith in him, he is able to save you to the uttermost. Look at the summary Mark gives in the last few verses of the, of the chapter, verses 53 to 56. He says, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And what does he say at the end there? And as many as touched it were what? Were made well. Now, made well there in verse 56. Um, it, it, it's, it's a fine translation to put it that way because they're being healed of physical diseases and things like that. But it, it comes from the same Greek word that we get saved from, sozo. So it, it, it can also mean to be saved. And I think that double meaning is implied here. We're supposed to get the picture that Jesus saves those who come to him and saves all who come to him. Notice again, once again, over and over in the Gospels, you will never see Jesus turning people away. Anybody who comes to him, even for physical healing, he heals. They beg to touch the hem of his garment to be healed. And what does he do? He heals them. You see people turn away from Christ left and right. You don't see Jesus turning away from sinners in, in the Gospels. It's as if the writers and the Holy Spirit who inspired them are trying as hard as they can to impress upon us the fact that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And he really is willing and able to save. The one who walked on water on the sea is mighty to save. And he's more than willing to save. We as his church would do well to be like those people in those towns and cities and bring the lost to hear his gospel just like those people brought people that were sick to him to be healed by him. If you don't yet know Christ, come to him even today and be made well from your worst disease, the disease of sin. Come to him by faith and have life and forgiveness in his name. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son, that you so loved the world that you sent your son, that uh, any who believe in him should not perish but have life everlasting. We thank you for sending uh, your son, the one who can walk on the sea as if it were nothing, the one who can make, uh, to make nothing or make a small boy's lunch, feed thousands and thousands of people, the one who, who you created all things through, that you sent him, uh, and he laid aside his glory willingly for our salvation, that he might live the life that we have failed to live and live that in our place, to live a life of perfect righteousness before you, always living to do your will in all things and do so joyfully and from the heart. And that he also died the death that we most certainly deserve. We deserve infinite and eternal punishment for our sins. We have sinned against a holy and infinite God and yet you send him, your, your holy son, your, the son of God himself, to make him take on flesh and die in our place and rise again on the third day. And we ask that you would give us grace to be, to be like those people in those towns that, that brought their, their friends, their sick loved ones to Christ. Give us grace to be a people with compassion as he had 
on those who don't know you as sheep without a shepherd to bring those we know to hear the gospel, that you might be pleased to work through that gospel through the foolishness of preaching to save those whom you want to save. And we pray that you would give us the grace to praise you and glorify you for all that you do. For we ask all this in his name. Amen.